welcome to Clauses and Controversies. Once upon a time, not so long ago, many governments could borrow in foreign markets only if they pledged assets to back the loan. And the loans weren't secured as we usually understand that term. A sovereign's most valuable assets are inside its territory. There's no international sheriff or repo man that can seize assets and hand them over to creditors. But these loans were close to secured loans. Sovereigns would promise creditors that they could have priority to customs duties, specific taxes and the like. And the creditors, or sometimes their home governments, even appointed agents to take over ports, manage the borrower's revenue institutions, and in other respects, look after their interests. So today that virtually never happens. Sovereigns virtually never pledge assets to back a loan of any kind. And it's true that the kind of overt imperialism that was associated with these pledges historically is less fashionable today. But while modern creditors can't rely on the same kind of backing from their home states, they do have fairly potent legal rights that prior generations of creditors lacked. And so we're talking today with Noel Maurer of George Washington University. Noel has done really, really wonderful work, including the book, The Empire Trap, about how governments commit to protecting investors' property rights. And so I wanna start by asking Noel two questions, really. One is a, a broad question about whether secured lending, broadly understood, has a place in today's sovereign debt markets. But the other is um, whether we can think of China in somewhat of a historical irony, now having stepped into these sort of imperialist shoes and lending in ways that would be familiar to it as a borrower a uh, hundred years ago. So welcome, Noel. Thanks, good to, good to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Of course, we're happy to have you. So what do you think? Is, a, is there a place for, for secured lending in, in modern sovereign debt markets? And is China now the, the new imperialist using loans abroad to really advance its own strategic uh, and political interests in ways that, um, that can harken back to the era of fiscal receiverships in the early 1900s? So these are, these are two, um, two different questions. So the first question is easier to answer. According to the World Bank, at least, uh, over the past decade and a half, about 15% of all sovereign lending to emerging markets has been collateralized in one way or another. Uh, it's, um, it's not always entirely clear what the World Bank means here when they say collateral. So for example, if there's lending to finance a hydroelectric plant, and that hydroelectric plant's gonna produce revenues, and those revenues are earmarked to pay back the loan. That's counted as sovereign lending by the IMF because it is guaranteed by the government, um, and sometimes because the project is public, and it's considered collateralized because there's a stream of income that's supposed to pay it. Um, there, are other, there are other forms of collateral that the, the IMF uh, also tracks. Sometimes there are uh, explicit pledges of, of assets uh, owned by state-owned companies or it goes through some sort of special purpose vehicle. A lot of times oil production gets collateralized that 
the oil will pay off the debt. These, these contracts, I've seen a whole bunch of those contracts. They are not what people think they are in the sense that they're a price guarantee. The creditor country is going to be buying oil at a fixed price. It's not, but it is that the creditor country has supposedly some claim on that petroleum when it's exported that they can then sell at the market price and use that to pay, pay down the, the, the debt that they are owed. And we could point to Venezuela, I assume, in this context. As a prime, as a prime example, Ecuador is another very uh, infamous one, or at least it was for a while. So there are there are there are collateralized sovereign debts. There's also these ones, as you pointed out, that China is is uh, is engaging in now, where they they have some sort of asset collateralized. That kind of infamous Sri Lanka one, where China didn't really receive sovereign rights over that port. <laughs> That's been portrayed in, in the press as something truly 19th century, so that's not quite what happened. But Chinese state-owned enterprises did get control of this corporate entity that ran this port in Sri Lanka, um, and that was tied to, to lending to the Sri Lankan government. I think it does happen. I think what doesn't happen is you don't get governments proclaiming that 6% of our domestic VAT revenues is going to be channeled to pay off this debt, that used to be really common and is not anymore, but that, those, kind of, those kind of revenue pledges, except in some really specific circumstances that I'm happy to talk about the ones I'm familiar with, those weren't even really that enforceable back in the 19th century. I mean, in 1867, there was this big debate in The Economist of all places over why investors insisted on, on these clauses, even though they don't matter. There was another one during the depression all these countries defaulted, and there were all these uh, public public statements of creditors decrying how horrible it is that we'd had these specific revenues pledged, these revenue streams haven't dried up, and they're not sending us the money, and other people pointing out, sometimes the Roosevelt administration pointing this out, that that's that's just, that's not enforceable. It's really nice that they pledged, but... Who cares? So I'm not sure why it disappeared so completely from being really common before the Great Depression to basically not appearing afterwards, except in a few, I think, really specific circumstances that even then aren't really applicable. So that I don't, I don't have a good hypothesis for that, but it's not clear that it really meant anything concretely beforehand. Again, except in a few specific circumstances where there were these really clever enforcement mechanisms in place to kind of ensure that that these, that these pledges would be enforceable. So Noel, I, I wanna jump in and ask you a couple of things. This is fascinating. I, I confess that I did not know that up to 15% of sovereign obligations currently have some kind of collateral because the data that I'm mostly familiar with, and I, I think I'm speaking for Mark as well, the, the data from sovereign bonds, the traditional bonds on the market, I haven't seen a promise of collateral in a pure sovereign issuance for a long, long time. I think maybe the only one I've seen is from the early 80s, might have been in a bond for one of the Congos. But we certainly did see in these kinds of bonds promises of to pay salt revenues or railroad revenues or uh, you can get guano, or I think maybe in a Brazilian bond, there was they would they promised to put a, a whole bunch of coffee in a warehouse in London, and if you didn't pay, then you got to go get the coffee or the 
the guano. I, li I like the guano promises, especially. So just getting the traditional story that I've heard from eminent sovereign debt lawyers, when I've asked them this question, why, why don't countries pledge co uh, collateral anymore for their sovereign bonds? They say, oh, you know, we discovered in after the Great Depression that these things didn't pay out. But the point you made uh, so very eloquently is that they've never been enforceable and everybody should have always known that, you know, how are you gonna go and get the guano from some country? You're gonna fly over there. I guess back then you would take your ship and try to, you know, get the, the bird poop uh, onto your ship. That's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not gonna happen. So what has substituted for it in the modern era I mean, I am implicit in that is that I'm thinking it's always just been reputation uh, that that drove this. And for some reason, the market doesn't seem to think that I need a promise of VAT or guano or Brazilian coffee, that just reputation is enough. Well, Mike Toms would argue that, that most lending has always been reputation. And my study of U.S government actions back during the infamous days of dollar diplomacy does seem to indicate that the U.S. government really did not sit around thinking that it was protecting the rights of bondholders, that most U.S. administrations could not care less. And when the rubber hit the road, they were perfectly happy to let bondholders out to, out to thrive. So my stance on, on that would be, would be that mostly that it has always been such. There were these few cases with Greece and the Ottoman Empire. Although even there, it's, it's questionable as to how much European powers forced these customs receiverships where the European powers would come in and take over the customs houses physically, how much of that was forced on them and how much of that was these, these governments agreeing to give up this chunk of sovereignty for better terms, knowing that it could be reversed in the future. The other, the other thing about collateralized debt is that comes from the World Bank and World Bank studies. And I don't know how much of the debts and the sovereign lending that they are looking at has to do with commercializable bonds. I suspect that those kind of bond issues, that is most of what we are thinking of when we're talking about foreign debt. I would be surprised if many of them were, were securitized. But it is true that there is a lot of lending today, which is, um, and some of it is securitized. I, I believe Angola started it off in the, in the 2000s when they issued some oil-backed uh, uh, credits. But again, I, 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 if I'm remembering correctly, these started with, uh, with loans from, from international banks and banking consortiums and were not commercializable bonds. I don't think they're clauses that I know of in bond contracts. So I think if you, if you looked at the, at the universe of just uh, marketable sovereign bond issuances, as opposed to the universe of international lending to sovereign governments, you'd probably find that there is no more collateralization and that there used to be a lot. And I agree with you, to make a long story short, that the real mystery is why investors like these clauses before 1940, much more than why they, they, they don't bother with them today. I mean, it's interesting. So one of the, the things that has always puzzled me is that 
while we've seen these revenue pledges disappear from the bonds themselves, some countries have adopted them as a matter of their domestic law. So they're not, these aren't provisions that say, here's a bucket of revenues from you know, a particular tax that we're going to devote to servicing public debt. But you have some countries um, that say our public debt is going to take a priority uh, over any other kind of claim on our resources. And so you have these weird blanket pledges that bondholders are going to be first in line. But even those are quite, quite rare. And my general view is unlikely to be uh, meaningful when push comes to shove. But you do see some countries for signaling or other purposes that are, are um, attempting to give priorities to public debt holders, just sort of a weird tension with the, the fact that there's no otherwise um, sovereign debt ple pledged with collateral. Most of these clauses back in the 19th and early 20th century were also only enforceable domestically. You had absolute sovereign immunity internationally. So good luck taking a country to court for deciding not to honor its clause to devote 3% of its coffee tax rent. Um, the, the, the bonds that I'd seen, or the, 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 the bond agreements that I've seen from the pre-World War II period that had clauses that were enforceable generally did not rely on the legal system for enforcement. So for example, there were a bunch of loan contracts signed with Central American governments where the government would pledge a chunk of the export tax, but the government also agreed that those export taxes would actually be collected in the United States. And so anyone who wanted to export coffee, say from Honduras to the United States needed to buy stamps from an office of National Citibank in the United States for the volume of exports that they wanted to, to sell in the United States. And the US agreed that it was gonna exclude any imports of Honduran or Costa Rican coffee to the United States that didn't have these proper stamps on them. So in essence, the tax was being collected in the United States and guaranteed to repay bondholders in the United States. And it wasn't that the bondholders were looking to say, aha, we can enforce this by going down to some kind of court in New York City, they were enforcing it because they knew that the Harding administration or the Coolidge administration, or at least they hoped, would be willing to stick with this gentleman's agreement that they would exclude any imports of coffee that had not or could not show that they had paid this export tax, again, collectible in the United States. And that was one of the one of the sort of contemporary arguments in favor of these revenue earmarks, if I recall. I'm thinking about like Borchard and other legal experts who said, look, as a bondholder, you're mostly screwed. Your government's not going to protect you. Whereas if you have property rights and you're expropriated, you have some chance at your your home government espousing your claim or otherwise protecting your interests. And that's consistent with uh, what you found in your own work. But Borchardt is like, look, the benefit of a revenue pledge is you're kind of like someone with property rights and you have a better claim to get the US government to advocate on your behalf. Do you have any sense whether that was true or was that just sort of false armchair wisdom? My sense is that that's mostly false armchair wisdom. Like all academics, I'm hesitant to make a blanket statement because I can find exceptions. But in general, that was true. The US government was willing to throw creditors under the bus when they thought political stability was at stake. So they would throw, they threw, they threw creditors 
under the bus in the Dominican Republic in 1905, when the US government basically crammed down a 50% haircut in net present value terms down creditors' throats, and then went on to establish a customs receivership where the US officials were collecting customs revenue in the Dominican Republic, but they, they, they told bondholders, <laughs> the Dominicans can't pay this back. No, we're not actually doing this because we want you to become whole. We're, we're, doing, this, we're doing this because we have other interests in the Dominican Republic. Similarly, when the depression came along, the US government was often encouraging countries to default on their on their debt. I mean, to the point where the Roosevelt administration almost overthrew the Cuban government because the Cuban government was pulling a Nicolae Ceausescu and not paying teachers and not paying police officers and letting the country slide into chaos in order to avoid defaulting on its debt. And the Roosevelt administration essentially arranged Grau to be overthrown because they they thought that that this was that letting Cuba slide into chaos to repay its debts was against American. So you can find cases where the U.S. government does espouse creditor rights. It's not uncommon at all. But whenever it came in a conflict, either with the, uh, the interests of foreign direct investors, who historically do seem to have the ear of the U.S. government and do seem to be able to lobby on their behalf far more effectively, creditors per se were usually just just thrown under the bus. So in that, in that sense, to, to bring it full circle, what you're seeing today in Venezuela, where creditors are not being supported by the Trump administration, whereas the Trump administration is more than willing to go to bat for ConocoPhillips, uh, is not all that far off the historic. That's interesting. So we should, we are at a good break point, I think. Maybe we will take a couple of minutes and then be back with Noel after that. Okay, we're back from our break and uh, Noel ended the prior session, I thought on a perfect note because it sets up a question I've been wanting to ask. So at the end of the prior session, he talked about this disjunction between the US attitude towards foreign direct investment in Venezuela versus its attitude towards bondholders, where it is giving support to the direct investors, but not so much to the bondholders. And that is very interesting because many lay people like me uh, often think that the U.S. government would support all types of investment. But as Noel's uh, wonderful book has shown, that that is not always true historically. But this also connects to what we've seen uh, recently in the context of China. And so, Noel, I, I want to ask you for your thoughts on this and thoughts generally on this uh, disjunction that sometimes shows up in U.S. foreign policy. So just last week, the Financial Times had an article about imperial Chinese bonds that I am obsessed with and Mark finds an utter waste of time. But the article talked about how this group of supporters of President Trump has been lobbying the Trump administration, including the president himself, for some years now to try and get their antique bonds paid. Some, they want some kind of settlement where they get paid cents on the dollar and they want uh, the US president to uh, use this as part of the trade talks. Now, the irony here is that at least my understanding of history is that when these similar bondholders brought claims against China in the 80s 
and obtained a default judgment against China because China said, we're not even gonna bother to show up in court. These are completely illegitimate. It was the US government, George Shultz, Secretary of State, who shows up in court and says, don't pay them. This is, in fact, to pay these people or to allow them the court process is just going to interfere with US foreign relations with China that we're just trying to get off the ground. So if these uh, supporters of Mr. Trump oh, um, have uh, any ax to grind, it's with uh, President Reagan's administration. But anyway, that's all to start with to say that I found what you said fascinating and I, you know so much more about this. So I wanna hear what you think about the current China drama and any other similar sorts of drama that are going on. I, don't, I, I am 100% sure that I do not know more about this than you, than you do, <laughs> a thousand percent sure. Um, my knowledge of the specific imbroglio with these Imperial Chinese bonds is that the British that Margaret Thatcher somehow arranged uh, them to be paid something, I don't know how much, as part of the handover of Hong Kong back to the, to the People's Republic. So there's a, a precedent, but that didn't go through courts. That was an entirely intergovernmental diplomatic thing. As far as I know, the Chinese side, they never recognized that, that, these, that they were paying off these old imperial bonds, um, uh, that, that, that they were just simply making part of the settlement of, of Hong Kong to make it clean. I have no idea how that would hand up, hold up in a court of law. I have some experience directly with people who are claiming that debts issued by the Mexican government uh, during a, a period where there had been a military coup in the middle of the Mexican Revolution, again, Adolfo de la Huerta. Uh, back in the day, you, you were not allowed in Mexico to say his name without following up immediately with you know, the traitor Huerta. Um, and this guy, this general, uh, pardon me, I got the, I got the word was confused because there were two words during this period. That was General Victoriano Huerta. Um, that, that General Huerta had issued, had issued debt. Uh, obviously, the revolutionary governments, when they took control, refused to recognize it. This became a bone of contention with the United States. But I should point out that it was a really tiny bone of contention with the United States because the U.S. government never recognized Huerta's government. The new revolutionary governments also uh, were willing to recognize debt that had been issued by the government before Huerta, but nothing Huerta issued. They were very clear on that, and they were backed up by the United States. They all agreed in this agreement in 1923, called the Bucarelli Agreement, that the, the Mexicans would start repayment on their, on their sovereign bonds. There was a haircut involved. But most of it was that the United States was going to compensate American direct investors for properties that had either been expropriated or damaged by revolutionary forces, that is by the people who currently control the Mexican government during the revolution. And so there was a lot of agreement about, you know, okay, yes, most of the agreement is about, yes, we're gonna compensate X number of dollars for X person who owned Y ranch in the state of Chihuahua or for damage to mining equipment that had been occupied by rebels or a textile mill that had been temporarily taken over, things like that. The Mexican government defaults on these renegotiated bonds literally within about 18 months. And then there's a whole drama about that debt. But what was consistently recognized was that, in effect, this was new debt that had been issued in 1923 
uh, that, that had extirpated all claims previously, and anyone can show up with any bond contract that they claim that was issued by a Mexican government before 1923, and that's, and that's great, but it has absolutely no standing because these, these new bonds issued in 23, or I shouldn't say bonds because they didn't issue negotiable securities, but this new debt contract that was agreed upon and this new schedule of payments to this new list of creditors that was all agreed upon in 1923, that's year day zero for, for Mexican sovereign debt. And nothing before that is, is, is actionable or admissible or, or, or can be right. I don't know how many similarities that that, are, that 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 will have with the People's Republic of China saying that you know 1949 is year zero. Uh, we have nothing to do with governments before us. Um, I, um, I I I I suspect that these guys have nothing to stand on unless the Trump administration decides to make noise about this. And I think the Trump administration's likelihood that the Trump administration can negotiate an agreement with China to have them paid off is about as likely as the Trump administration being able to negotiate an agreement with China over the purchases of agricultural goods or the stealing of American intellectual property or the placing of claims in the South China Sea or all of the other incredible deals that the Trump administration has struck where they have gotten the People's Republic of China to do things. I mean, the, the, the funny thing, so Me Too loves to talk about the old Chinese bonds. I hate it, not because I don't think it's interesting, but because I find this group of claimants so like, entirely unsympathetic. But the, <laughs> the irony to me is not that the U.S. government had a change of heart, because the, the U.S. government has been pretty consistent historically at opposing the aggressive assertion of court jurisdiction in the U.S., because more than any country in the world, the U.S. worries about reciprocity in that context. It doesn't want to be hauled into court all around the world itself. The irony to me is that I can't, and maybe this is a good last question or nearly last question for Noel, I can't think of a less deserving group of claimants to have the U.S. government intervene on their behalf than this one. Can you think of a less worthy group of claimants for the U.S. government to take up the sword on their behalf? All right, personally, I have met with uh, some of the heads of vulture funds dealing with Argentina. And again, this won't be surprising with the exception of, of Hans Humes, they're, they're often not a sympathetic bunch. And in private, they say things where you just scratch your head and say, you know, you don't, you don't act this way when United Airlines runs into trouble. You don't have such a moralistic stance about it. And so I find that often um, uh, aggravating and unsympathetic, but I don't quite think it seems to the level of but they have real claims. Like they buy debt that is valid debt. It's unpaid. It was unpaid within the relevant statute of limitations. I, I have yet to see Elliot sue on 200-year-old debt. Am I wrong about exactly. that? Exactly. I don't think you're wrong about it. I don't think you're wrong about it. Don't give them ideas. Don't give them <laughs> ideas, Mark. But, um, Noel, I, I, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you another unfair question. Uh, but you, your interests and capabilities are so wide-ranging that um, at least uh, my justification is that you have talked about some of these issues 
on your blog uh, some years ago, I think, maybe when you were on vacation in the Caribbean. Uh, but here, here goes. Uh, there was a news report yesterday uh, about how um, apparently uh, our president had wanted to sell Puerto Rico. And he, we know that he wanted to buy Greenland. And, and at some level, uh, and I think this is Mark's view, that this is just so ridiculous and crazy that we shouldn't talk about it. Uh, but um, I think the question is, uh, you know, as a matter of international law, some would argue, I think conventional conservative international law scholars would tell you, it is perfectly legal for a country to sell and buy territory with the people of the territory going to the purchaser. Uh, it's just, we don't do that anymore. But when you have leaders like Donald Trump or you know, Narendra Modi in India who would be quite happy to get rid of a whole bunch of people and that territory, are these kinds of transactions as crazy as Mark would like to think? So I got to admit, I'm a huge fan of, of, uh, of the market for sovereign control. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it because it's, it's, it's interesting and it's provocative, but I'm also a fan of it because I have a, a, a pretty strong feeling uh, that I, I could spend hours justifying that secession, unless the moral case, or at least secession from a democracy, unless the moral case or the practical elements are so overwhelming that you're in an Algeria in 58 or an Ireland in 19 situation that it's just not justified. It just opens up too much of a can of worms, which idea of a market for sovereign control would, would obviate a lot of those, a lot of those, a lot of those qualms I have. Um, so I, I, I like the idea. Specifically, I think I should say, I think buying Greenland is not nuts. It may be stupid, but it's not nuts. Selling Puerto Rico is nuts. And here's my understanding of, of why it would be nuts. First of all, when you're selling, it's not clear what you're selling there. A claim on the tax revenues so that you could take the Puerto Rican economy and create an extractive tax system to uh, somehow uh, uh, generate a giant balance of payments um, um, surplus. Like you would suddenly need this massive current account. You just need to, need to suddenly generate this massive current account surplus that uh, Puerto Rico would be using to pay whatever entity bought it. And that seems um, both unlikely and a great recipe for, for, for revolution. So I'm not, I'm not really seeing that. Another legal problem, which you avert to, is that the Puerto Ricans have been American citizens since 1917. It's really not clear. American law and citizenship is, is really vague. Uh, one of the problems, for example, with even Puerto Rico getting independence from the United States is it's not clear how you would possibly force someone living in Puerto Rico to give up their American citizenship and thus their claim on social security benefits. A huge chunk of the payments US government makes to the island would continue um, with the exception of some, some small chunk of, of Medicaid. Uh, if, if, if Puerto Rico were a sovereign nation populated entirely by American citizens. So it's not clear how, how that would work. So sort of the idea of selling Puerto Rico 
uh, absent some political desire on the part of the Puerto Rican people to be part of another polity doesn't make any sense. I don't know what the U.S. would gain for it. I don't know what its potential buyer would be. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. It's like, it's weird. It's just, it's, it's, that's Trump blowing off steam and frothing at the mouth. Greenland, buying Greenland may be crazy, but at least I can wrap my head around it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll admit I'm a, I am for emotional reasons, a big supporter of the Trump administration's initiative to establish a permanent base on the moon by 2024. I probably read too much science fiction as a kid, but this like, this makes me happy. And I'm perfectly happy for the United States to spend vasty sums of money on, on this because it makes me feel good. My son likes it too. It's, it's cool. And I can, I can wrap my head around buying Greenland is kind of the same thing. Like that would, that would be cool. That would just, that would be neat to have this you know, map in Canada. So it's neat. I don't know what we get for it, given that in military terms and strategic terms, we already have pretty close to, to complete sovereign control. I mean, there's, there's ways in which China, I suppose, could kind of bribe the Greenlanders away that would put the United States in a tricky situation that they couldn't if the U.S. had sovereignty over them, but that's the only, only reason I can think of there. Uh, I suppose you could, if you offered Greenlandic voters enough money, also get a claim on, on sort of the government share of future mineral revenues from there. Um, that, that's possible. And so again, I don't, if you think those, those two things plus cool is worth it if you wanted to make an offer to individual Greenlandic citizens for them to become an unincorporated territory of the United States? Sure, why not? I, I, don't, I don't think it would be worth it. I think you're talking something like 500,000 to a million dollars per Greenlander, and I don't know if $50 billion is worth it, but I suspect that if, if, if the Trump administration made an offer saying, we're going to both make this reversible. So you're going to be an unincorporated territory. So in theory, your mind can change. Uh, two, uh, we're going to offer in some way or another, either plonking into an Alaska-like permanent fund or just cutting checks, offer every man, woman, and child on the island $500,000. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if that would pass. Uh, what we would get for it, I have no idea. Um, besides the map and some insurance that possibly maybe a future Chinese government won't bribe a, uh, a future Greenlandic government. Other, other, you know, heck, money's free these days, so. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta spend it on something. And so why wouldn't you spend it on Greenland and a permanent base on the moon? That is. Yeah, I can't tell you why emotionally I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with the manned space program. I'm not alone in this. It's like a far more mainstream position than buying Greenland. Um, so I'm with you. I could see... sentiment is very similar, I think. Is, I see long-term scientific benefits. I also see that we are um, eluding at least, we're escaping the boundaries of my expertise at least, and have had Noel for um, longer than we promised. And so with deep appreciation, thank you so much for joining us. And... Uh, we will talk to you in other contexts soon, I hope. I hope so. I hope so. I hope we should, we should not, not, not let it go as long as we, as we, as we have. So. Thank you so much. It was such a treat to talk to you now.